Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Mark Zimmerman. He is the chef owner of Gozu, which is in San Francisco, California. It's a counter style tasting menu restaurant, but they primarily focus on Wagyu. And it's not just all meat. Um, every course isn't just a different cut of Wagyu or anything like that. They incorporate different elements of Japanese cuisine in there, but Everything is kind of based around their hearth and Wagyu are the two kind of focal points. I had the opportunity of eating there myself a little less than a year ago, but it was like March when I went out there to record the episode with Marcin Kroll, who was in town from Maison. They were doing a collaboration dinner with the team over at Saison. So Mark Bright helped set that interview up and was out there. And I had a couple other times, you know, I had to find some food to eat and it was like kind of where could I go and, you know, what was open and everything like that too as well. And Gozu was one of the places and it just looked awesome. Looked like something I'd be interested in. Never really had kind of Wagyu focused cuisine before where everything was built around that concept. You know, obviously had Wagyu at different tasting menus, different dishes and stuff like that. But where everything is kind of springing off, you know, that element, that ingredient, which is something that seems super unique. So I wanted to try it firsthand and had an awesome time. Uh, the restaurant is kind of in this office building and uh, everything's kind of muted. It's not like to the point where it's so minimal that it's overly distraction or anything like that, but everything is kind of gray earth tone. And then you have the fire and the hearth kind of in the middle and it's, you know, your standard square U shape counter around that. And then they have a private dining area and everything, but you're watching everybody cook uh, all the different dishes and everything. And then they kind of bring them to you firsthand and, and then tell you about them. So very similar to Momofuku Co kind of does the same thing. Bastion uh, on their tasting menu side kind of does the same thing where the chefs and the cooks are presenting the dishes to you. And then they have a few sommeliers and wine and hostess and everything like that and different staff people. But it was a fantastic experience. So I wanted to reach out, you know, and have Mark on the podcast and he was down to do it. And we just get into everything, his career. Um, you know, he's worked in New York and Las Vegas for a long period of time and then wound up in San Francisco and then was opening restaurants internationally in Taipei and Japan and then started his own thing and, you know, how he got into Wagyu and the different elements of it you know i know a decent bit about it you know kind of the general surface where it's you know your different grades you know a5 is this the thing that everybody wants and he really gets into it and i ask him because he's the most knowledgeable person i've encountered on the subject he's spent so much of his career based around wagyu that what is truly the difference between like an a5 and an a2 or a b5 and a a2 or a b5 and an a5 so we get into all that the different breeds of cows different lineages, stuff like that. We get really nerdy, so it's really cool. We haven't had anybody on like this that has this background in Wagyu and everything that it means and, and beef and everything like that too and importing stuff from Japan and full cows and all this stuff. So it's a really fun episode to just be able to nerd out on that one element, you know, Wagyu, where we haven't had anybody with this level of expertise on the podcast previously. And he runs an amazing restaurant. Uh, to boot with delicious food and he's opening a new concept yokai which is going to be a little more casual can have a little bit more seafood on the menu and everything that's going to be opening here probably within the next couple months out in san francisco and it sounds like a really cool concept so i'm super excited to try that out whenever we get back to san francisco too as well because goes is amazing so i'd recommend it it's also oddly like affordable the pricing for you know a tasting menu you know you're pre-booking it through i think talk and everything and it's not outrageous it's not like other you know michelin starred restaurants in san francisco where some of them can get to this crazy price point 
it's actually really affordable. They don't have a Michelin star. I think they were mentioned in kind of the maybe the Bib Gorman section of it most recently or anything like that, but they'll eventually get a Michelin star. There's no doubt in my mind. It's that level of quality of what they're doing there. People just have to kind of learn a little bit more about what they're doing and not think that it's just every course is Wagyu beef coming at you or anything like that. But you can follow Mark on Instagram. His handle is at chef underscore Zimmerman. You can also follow the restaurants at Gozu, so G-O-Z-U dot S-F. And then also the new restaurant, Yokai, so at Y-O-K-I-A dot S-F. And they're going to be just started, I think, they posted the other day uh, about their pop-up that they're going to do the Yokai pop-up in Gozu. And then that'll eventually spin off into its own location once they get uh, everything wrapped up there. So uh, you can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, everything else, uh, either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1. Make sure to check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We got profiles for all of our guests, uh, all the new updates since they've been on too. We write them up in there. And then when they come back on the podcast, we'll cover it and put it in the new episode and everything. Food photos from all the places we've been, all the different chefs, you know, uh, we've had their cuisine, whatever restaurant that they're working at. You can find all that stuff there too as well. There's a contact portal on the website. So you can write in questions, comments, feedback, whatever. That'll come straight to us. You can also email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. And lastly, make sure to follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. We're on all the platforms. You can find us. Just search Spoon Mob. Just click the little check mark or follow button, whatever the platform uses, and then all the new episodes will drop straight in your feed. And then, you know, you won't miss any of the new episodes. And then a week later, it hits uh, YouTube, our YouTube channel. We'll throw it up there for anybody that prefers YouTube as their kind of podcast listening platform. Try and take care of those people too as well. It just comes out a week later because, you know, that's just the way we decided to do it. It makes it a little bit easier for us and everything. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Mark Zimmerman, the chef owner of Gozu and the forthcoming Yokai in San Francisco, California. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your morning there on the West Coast. I had the pleasure of eating at your restaurant earlier this year. It was uh, in March. Super unique experience, different from anything in terms of the menu, just because you guys kind of specialize in Wagyu. I mean, that's kind of your focal point of what you're doing and everything kind of revolves around that, which is super interesting. But yeah, I had an awesome experience. Uh, I was traveling solo, so my wife didn't get to go, but I know it's a place that she would definitely want to go whenever we're back in San Francisco, just because of the style, the counter seating, you can see everything in front of you. You know, you guys got the hearth in the center, everything's kind of built around that. I want to get into, you know, you opening Gozu, the restaurant and everything, and you got another concept in the works that's going to be opening soon. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody, you know, how did you kind of first get involved with cooking? Was it something that you just kind of fell into? Was it family lineage? Yeah, I think it was something I just kind of fell into. I started cooking when I was 15 years old. I was washing dishes at this little Italian red sauce joint in Indianapolis, Indiana. And it was just a way to, you know, whatever, make some money as a kid in high school. And one day, I think one of the cooks showed up just blown out on coke and drunk and they sent him home and they said, hey, get on the line tonight. I think at that point, I was 14 still. We were doing roughly 230 covers a day. And so it was just this like down and dirty old school red sauce spot that kind of got me into it. I started to kind of enjoy it. They asked if I wanted to stay on. I said, sure. And uh, ended up getting like early release out of high school to work there for another couple of years. And then moved on to, to college, back to real life or what I thought was real life and uh, to pursue music, which is something that I'd done 
you know, all my life growing up. And I think my emphasis was on uh, music engineering technology was my first degree that I went after. Um, and quickly realized that I liked hanging out and partying a lot more than I like going to class at eight in the morning. Then it came back to, okay, what are we going to do to pay this rent? Uh, or we got to go home. I took another job at a restaurant called Foxfires, uh, which is long gone. But Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield, created this fine dining restaurant in Muncie, Indiana. I think there's an IHOP there now, which is what it should have been the whole time. That was where I was first exposed to like Trinidad's Rossini, cooking foie gras and cooking high-end beef and really working with all the mother sauces. And it was very like classically French uh, with, with a wine spectator, award-winning wine cellar. It was just completely out of place, but it was a spot for Jim to entertain clients. So then it started becoming really fun and interesting. And uh, I started tasting some things that I'd never tasted in my life. I started to think like maybe there's something to this. So then I actually went back to Indianapolis uh, and started working for a, a chef named Stephen Oakley, who's still doing an amazing job there. And uh, he did a lot of mentoring for me and kind of slapped me into shape and let me know that the floor wasn't the place where things went from your cutting board. It, it was the trash can. And, you know, every step of the way, they would just kind of built me into a more disciplined cook when I was younger. And he came over from Charlie Trotter's. He was a Sioux at, at Trotter's back in the day. So it was just this hardcore environment. Again, another restaurant that probably shouldn't have been in the place where it was at. He was a CIA grad. Um, so I ended up going to the Colony of of America. And then things started really getting kind of serious with, with things. So that's what got me into it. So when you're going for music engineering, did you want to produce albums? Did you want to do movie soundtracks? Like what were you kind of leaning towards that career path? I had a lot of interest in acoustics. Um, I also had a, a minor in piano performance. So I kind of had this like wide angle that I was, I was kind of doing the thing where college comes after high school. What are you going to do? Music had just always been a thing that, I'd done since I was a kid, whether it was piano or saxophone or anything like that. And I still play piano today. I think the idea was to kind of explore the world of music without just strictly performance. I knew there wasn't a ton of money to be made in performance. Of course, then I went into cooking, so it didn't really make a difference. Similarities between music and cooking and building menus and writing music and performance and even helping others to produce. We talk about it a lot in the restaurants about like just the production of you take a young chef with raw ideas and you help them to get their food to the next point. I think there's a lot of similarities in there that kind of connected. You decided to eventually, like you mentioned, go to culinary school. You go to the Culinary Institute of America over in New York, wind up graduating. Why did you choose there instead of Chicago's got some culinary schools that was closer? New York was New York. You know, growing up in Indiana, New York City was always a, a huge thing. And CIA was about about an hour and 40 minutes north there in Poughkeepsie and Hyde Park area. And I wanted to get a lot of exposure to, to New York City, which in my opinion at the time was the kind of the culinary mecca of the United States, if not if not further. It definitely still is in, in many ways. And that was the big thing was the proximity to the city. The plan was, you know, after school to, to move down to the city and start a career there. Didn't quite go that way, but that was the initial thought of going that direction. Did you work anywhere in the city while you were in school, stage or anything like that? Yeah, I did a bunch of stages for like Jean-Georges. And this is back in 2001. So I mean, the hot restaurants then were like Kraft. Uh, I spent some time in Tom Clicquio's restaurant, spent some time uh, with Jean-Georges at a restaurant called Long. That was like a kind of an Asian thing that he was doing for a minute. I spent time staging at La Bernadette and Pichelin, Cafe Grey when Grey Coons 
uh, was putting things together in that big Time Warner building in Columbus Circle when that all first started happening. So yeah, I was, I was running around a lot. I was in the city just about every weekend doing some kind of stage. And then once I graduated, I started putting together longer, longer stages and then eventually just ran out of money and had to leave. Lots of great experience to be had there. It was a blast running around New York. Based on your experience then and then also throughout your career up till now, somebody in your kitchen serious about being a chef wants to open their own restaurant one day and they ask you, hey, should I go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I think culinary school goes two ways. Culinary school did a lot for me. It allowed me to just put everything down and focus. I think I just paid off culinary school is the flip side of that at you know 43 years old the environment that i had and i had an older group all of us were pretty much i think there's one kid that wasn't 21 so we could really integrate wine into everything that we were doing as well and it really just put me in an environment where everybody could taste together i think if you're somebody that's got your foot in the door at a great restaurant in a great food city or in an area where the culture is rich and you can expand and drive i don't think there's anything wrong with working your way up through it. Um, and we certainly don't hold it against you at all. I, I think there's a lot to be said for somebody that can learn through others while on the job at that level of intensity, rather than this kind of like baby step, you know, that you take with school. Uh, I think schools have changed a lot too over time and it's become a little bit more coddling and a little less hardcore. I think there was a, a lot of uh, intimidation when I was first starting out at CIA and I, it was kind of like the boot camp of where you go for, for culinary and you better have it together. Or you're going to get kicked out. There were tons of requirements to get in there. And so I think, you know, I think it's different for every person, but I valued it. I certainly don't think it's necessary to succeed at all. After culinary school, like you said, you're kind of in New York working and then eventually you run out of money. So what happens there? Because eventually you wind up in Las Vegas working. So was that next after? Or did you go back to Indiana? CIA does their internships in the center of their program. So you go to school for a year, six months of externship, they call it, and then another year of school. So when I was looking at places to go, I was kind of talking to my wife and I said, hey, you know, I've been running around New York a lot doing stages. It'd be kind of cool to get a breath of something else for six months. Where would you want to go for six months? And then end up being like, oh, let's go out to Las Vegas, you know, let's go check out some of these big hotels, see how things operate from the inside of that. That sounds cool. Sounds kind of fun. Las Vegas was paying well then, where there was a lot of, you know, just internships in, in New York and at some of the bigger restaurants that I, I couldn't afford to do because it was just completely free. We ended up there. We ended up enjoying it. There was still the plan to move to New York City after after graduation. And uh, there was just this major fallout with landlords and ridiculousness that everybody, I feel like, runs into at some point in their life. And we said, okay, we're going to put all our stuff in it and turn it west. So we ended up going back out to Las Vegas and kind of connecting with some people that, that I spent time with when I was there. You wound up working at a bunch of places there. Nobu, Guy Savoy, Latisse, Social House, Sokata. So was that all by design? Because it seems like I've only had one other person who works out in Vegas, still Sheridan Sue. But when we were talking, he kind of mentioned that the way Vegas kind of operates with the restaurants is everybody's kind of at a restaurant for one, maybe two years, and then they move somewhere else down the strip. Was that kind of your experience too? Mine was a little bit more natural. That's cool. You know, Sheridan, I worked with Sheridan at, at Social House um, for a couple of years. Mine was a little bit more organic. I got back out there and got a job working at Lutece, which was in the Venetian, which was kind of like the clone of the Lutece in New York City. Um, so I had a little bit of familiarity there. David Fayo was running the kitchen. And then like three months into it, he leaves, kind of starts to get shaky. And I was never one to really hang out to see who's next. So I left and I was 
was really, really curious about Japanese food. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's because it was so foreign to me. And I saw that Nova was hiring. So I applied there. I was like, okay, well, that resume is going nowhere. Where else should we look? So I think I threw in it like Le Cirque and a couple other like French spots. They kind of like matched up with more of my experience at the time. And, and then I got a call from Nobu and they said, you know, we want to talk to you. And, and I ended up getting hired there and it was really eye-opening and kind of this whole new world of flavor and aroma came into my life at that point. And that, I think that's probably when, when it started to grab me was just like smelling Bonito for the first time and smelling some of these ingredients that I've never been exposed to in my life that really started to feel kind of natural in a, in a way that, that I hadn't had before. Everything else kind of felt forced. It felt a little bit difficult, a little bit, why are we doing this? I started getting into the Japanese food. It really started to make sense. You wind up getting your first executive chef job. Was that in Vegas or was that elsewhere? I was in Las Vegas. So after Nobu, I left there. I went to Okada, which was Takashi Yagahashi's spot in the wind when they were just opening that, that whole mega property. I was kind of curious to see what it, what it looked like to open a $3 billion hotel, you know, how that process went. At the time, man, it was like Takashi was there. Daniel Balud was right downstairs. And all these guys are there. That was the big thing with that opening was that these chefs are going to be here. So you've got Danielle running around. You've got Thomas Keller that's coming over from Bouchon to do events with Danielle. It was like, there was no doubt at that time that Las Vegas was the spot. That's just where everybody was. And anyway, from there, I was part of the opening team for Restaurant Guy Savoie, uh, which was back into the French thing where I think I was still a little bit confused and trying to figure out, you know, whether it was technique over philosophy or, or what I was looking for in my culinary kind of frame of reference. But then I spent a little bit of time there and that kind of didn't fit again. And then I ended up going back. Joe Lovato, who was a chef de cuisine at Nobu at the time, uh, and then became the executive chef at the restaurant called Social House, um, where Sheridan was a sous and where I came on as a, a chef de partie at, at that time. So I was kind of back working with Joe. We knew each other. He pushed me and he did a lot of mentoring for me and helped me to kind of grow up a little bit hard to do in Las Vegas in your 20s. There's, there's a lot of late nights and arrested development going on. And he helps me to, to grow. And I became a sous at uh, Social House. And then they opened another restaurant in the Luxor of all places, which was this like American style restaurant, 300 seats, big Avroco design. It was gorgeous, but it was in this pyramid on the south end of the strip. Joe's like, hey, we're getting a little tight on labor. And you know, they need somebody down there to run the program. It made sense because I was like, all right, I just want to move forward. I want to move up. Being able to do something on my own sounds good. So I took that position as chef de cuisine and then later becoming the executive chef there. There's a lot to learn there. And there's a lot of cost watching and things like that. It was one of these things where you've, you've gotten to where you want to be. You're running your own program. You can hire people. You can fire people. You can write the menu. You can choose your team. But everything is being scrutinized by the upper levels of, you know, the, it was pure management company, which was like pure nightclub. It was this big nightclub group, right? That was running that whole program. So there was a ton of stuff to getting menu changes done and a lot of just like kind of teaching people what the food was that you were even trying to put together. And I'm sure the guys that came before me had that same sentiment. Nonetheless, we did it for a while, I think it was two and a half years, and then they decided to turn it into a like a tap room or something like that, which is probably what it should have been. Again, I guess it's kind of a pattern in my career that I, I left there. Basically, we closed it and there was like this intermittent dark period. It was 2010. The whole market was collapsed in Las Vegas. 
I foreclosed on, a, on my house. My wife lost her job. And we kind of did that thing again where it's like, well, neither one of us have jobs. If we could go anywhere, where do you want to go? Can't be worse than where we are. We had talked a lot about getting to the Bay Area and San Francisco and had traveled here in Napa. And so that was kind of the, the catalyst for, for movement on that. We picked everything up and moved here. Um, and it was almost like we moved out of a recession. Like California was hit, but it wasn't here near as hard as Las Vegas. It was wild. Just 350-seat restaurants where the normal cover counts are six to 800 a night, and you're doing 30. It was just like completely unsustainable. So it was just it was a weird, weird, weird time for Las Vegas. But it was kind of good because it moved things forward for us. Las Vegas, I mean, kind of the shelf life for a restaurant seems to be about 10 years if it's really successful and then naturally just gets closed and turns over. So does that kind of make it almost in a way impossible for anybody to really live there for longer than like five years? I mean, there are people that live there and chefs and work and everything. It seems like everybody in kind of your generation or around your generation in your kind of class, everybody kind of went to Vegas for at least a couple years, but nobody ever really stayed. I mean, I think that's Las Vegas in general. It's a super transient town. It always has been. I think it's getting better. They're making it more of a home for people. They got sports teams now. Vegas has always been a pass-through city. I was there for seven years. I never really had the intention of staying for more than six months. You know, we had a lot of fun. But then once you get out of there, you kind of see the world as it is again. And there's a lot of corporate control over Las Vegas, both from the hotel side of things and then also just the business interactions with hotels and, and big corporate food distributors and clients like that. I, I remember just going nuts because we, we had access to the Santa Monica farmer's market that they would deliver bi-weekly to us. But the guys down on the loading dock were like cutting into like all the fruit because it was like SOP in the hotel, you know, to like, make sure the fruit's okay and it's like guys why are you cutting into my market produce we ordered what we need and now we've got this thing with a bite out of it you know like what are we doing um but there's a lot of that and there's a lot of just you order greens from this company and we buy five pallets at a time and you're lucky if you get a pallet that looks good and you can come down to the warehouse and sort through the cases if you want you know was kind of the deals that they made with this but cooking on like a, a serious level and I, don't, I don't want to say it's impossible because there's tons of guys that are doing it sheridan's doing it brian howard is doing it in a big way and those guys have a lot of a lot of balls they're doing what they can and carving out their niche in that town um that big corporate town and they're doing amazing stuff um so it can definitely be done and there's a lot more happening now too there, i know there's some apiaries that are popping up there's some desert farms that are popping up out there that are, that are kind of cool so I think the whole area is getting its thing, but but yeah, for me, it was time to kind of get to more fertile fertile ground. When you get up to San Francisco, I mean, eventually you wind up joining Alexander's Steakhouse. You're the CDC, eventually executive chef, and also, I think, kind of like their business development chef. So how did you wind up landing there? That was in the old Bacar space there on Brannon Street, which was like, I was walking my dog. My wife had already got her job. She actually got a transfer, which is good. So we were kind of stable and we had an apartment and I was walking by there and I saw that kind of the change of ownership and the application for a liquor license in the window. And I was like, okay, these people need somebody probably. I'd looked at a couple other spots. I'd put in resumes all over town and I think a lot of that transition from Las Vegas to San Francisco, it took some time. I think San Francisco chops versus Las Vegas chops, at least the people that live in San Francisco, are a different thing. I think I dropped resumes at Gary Danko, Qua, Boulevard. I mean, it was everywhere that was anybody in 2010. And I didn't get a whole lot of response. I think I got a response from Danko, but I was back in Las Vegas at the time. 
uh, just seeing some friends and it didn't connect. But but anyway, so I'm walking my dog and I see the sign. I was like, well, I don't think anybody goes to culinary school and says, I'm going to go run a steakhouse. You know, again, it could just be me to anybody that, that is. And I mean, I did for a long time. You know, it was just kind of like, hey, this could be a means to an end. I can do this for a minute. Let's see what's going on. I look it up. And at the time they had the restaurant Cupertino. And this is when Jeff Stout and JC Chen were the owners. And Jeff was the, the chef there. And he'd gotten all kinds of press for doing this like different kind of steakhouse. And he's half Japanese. And he's got all this influence that's coming in. So it really kind of started. To, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. And it, you know, there's, there's some attention to detail as far as like plating and the quality of the beef is there and, and where it's coming from. There's, you know, attention to that as well. And I called down there and Jeff called me back and we had a meeting and, and it, everything kind of made sense. And I did a tasting for them and, and then ended up being the first chef to in in that spot. So yeah, that's kind of that story. Do you remember what you cooked for your tasting? Like, was it mystery basket or was it like cook whatever you want? It was a little bit of both. Jeff is great because there's uh, like this nonchalantness to him, but there's also very high expectation. And I, I think I was kind of onto that very early. And he, he'd also rather see you push and miss than play safe. Man, I can't remember what it was. I, I did something with, it was a New York strip, you know, I was like, okay, I, I got to at least show him that I know how to cook a piece of meat if I'm going to do this job. Um, but then there was, there was a lot of other freedom. I think one thing I made, I made like this bonito ice cream with trout roe uh, on top of it and like some quinome or something like that. Jeff tasted it and he's like, that's terrible. He was like, well, that's smart. He was like, I see what you're trying to do. That's okay. What else? And there was a scallop dish that I did that I'd done in the past. I, I kind of learned early with tastings to make sure. Not everything you're doing is the first time you've done it. I had a scallop dish with, with a, it was like scallop and celery and onion and just some little meringues and things like that. So it's just this like nice seared scallop with some crunchy pieces and, and this like curry and, and celery kind of back to it um, that I'd done before. I think that was primarily it. And then, uh, and then of course he throws this wrench and things. He was like, Hey, we got some investors in there's five of them. Uh, you want to throw something together for him real quick. And so I'm in this like crazy kitchen um, that I'd never been in. I didn't know where anything was in the cooler. When you're doing a tasting, you just carve out your little area. You're like, this is where I can survive for now. And then we'll see from, you know, from there. And I did this kind of this beef thing. And then uh, we took a, like a brown butter panko crust on top and just like a little thing with lobster or something like that. It's just like a little surf and turf. Comes back and he was like, yeah, they loved it. It's great. They want to meet you. So we go out and we say hi. And then he's like, yeah, I think this works. That's kind of it. And then we got to work cleaning up the leftovers of Bacar and got that restaurant set up. That was seven years. Jeff left, I think it was around 2013 uh, when I became the executive chef there. And then we started really kind of pushing into expansion and got the, there's a seafood restaurant that's, that's still in existence now um, called The Sea that opened, man, three days after Jeff left, I think, um, three or four days, something like that. We opened in Alexander's in Taipei and in Tokyo, uh, which kind of further cemented this idea of, of Asia and Japan in particular into me and what I do. And I just kind of spend time, you know, when you're spending months at a time and in a place, you can really start to identify with it and see the, the good and the bad. I think seeing the bad in Japan is the hardest thing to do for people because it takes at least two weeks before you get there. Some things start to service and you're like, ah, okay, now I see how things work. That was a big, big, big influence. Um, and working with Chanel, the president, you know, we grew that company together and it was, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. And then it just kind of ended up being time for me to do mine. And so that's kind of where we, where we moved on from there. 
When you're opening those international locations, like how difficult is that? Because I mean, you're in a foreign country, you're basically living there. You don't know the language, right? Obviously, it's a challenge. It's exciting. Truly, though, like how hard is that? It's hard. When we opened in Taipei, it was interesting. I'd been there several times uh, and we'd kind of done some testing. We'd done some three-day dinners and things like that, that we could at least get somebody, you know, get some promotion going and get some gauge on what kind of things people are looking for there and if, if we should even be there. And I had two guys with me from Alexander's through that. And so there's a lot of connection. You know, those were five 20-hour days of getting things ready for all these dinners. So there's a lot of touch and a lot of communication with people in those kitchens. And you find guys that speak English, they're around. And one of them's name was was Calvin. We did these events at the Regent in Taipei, which is actually in like the Japantown kind of area of Taipei. And Calvin left from that and went and worked for Robuchon Atelier almost immediately following. And so Jamie Brownsmith, who graduated with me from CIA and had been cooking with me at Alexander's and he kind of made this career change of going from hotel front of the house to I want to get back into it. I want to cook. And they said, you can come cook in my restaurant if you want, <laughs> you know, we'll figure something out. He grew fast just because he was a mature dude. And we end up selecting him as the, the executive chef for this new project. And it was him and Joe Offner, another great chef in the area. Joe's the Sioux. So I send these guys over to Taipei, like, four weeks before I go. I'm like, look, we need to find the markets. We need to get things figured out as far as ordering goes, where things are coming from. That's pretty loose. Like that's all we need. I'll be there. Then we can hammer out menu. You'll have an idea of where we can get product. Should be easy. And so so I land and not doing any of that. They all knew women by that point, um, but none of them knew where the market was at that point. And, and I was like, guys, what, what are you been doing? And they're like, English here, man. <laughs> like, we haven't been doing anything because we can barely get from our apartment to the restaurant. And I'm like, okay, we got to figure this out. So, you know, I kind of worked my side of things. I had a little bit more connection. So we get some people to drive us around. We get back in the restaurant. We got some product. We got some stuff. And then I'm like, where's that dude Calvin at now? And then we tracked him down, called him, and we're like, whatever you need, get over here. Like, we, we need you. And I think we just about killed him, uh, being a translator and a Sioux in that restaurant. That's kind of how we had to do it, because it was just like, there was absolutely no way to do it. And, and like, everything you think about, like, even your invoices show up, and they're, they're written in Chinese. You're like, I, don't, I can't even tell you if the stuff that I ordered is here. Like, we need somebody that can do both. And so when we went to do Japan, that became more of a factor, where it was like, hey, we need somebody on our side, on our team that speaks both also in, in the realm of, you know, the, the level that I was at and, and what I was doing with wasn't just food, but it was like working with the clients and the partners that we had there. It was like, how do you want these restaurants to perform? What are you looking for? What do you, what do you want to see on the bottom line? Are we making 5% bottom line restaurants or 10% bottom line restaurants? And do you know the difference? And those conversations are super hard in either one of those environments, because what I say isn't always how it gets translated. So there's always a little bit of a miss. I learned a lot about people and, and language in general, uh, opening those two restaurants where language isn't necessarily just audible form of communication. It's also a way of thinking. So even if you understand what I'm saying, you may not you know, interpret the nuance of of where it comes from, or even make the, there's a lot of assumptions made when you and I have a conversation that aren't necessarily connected from somebody that comes from a completely different 
place than you. It's a wild world and it's very, very challenging to get it done. But when you, when you do, it feels good. So when did you know it was kind of time to open your own place? I didn't see much else coming down the line from Alexander's. Chanel had just brought on Claude the Took. I could kind of see what was happening and I was going to get stuck in that spot. And I think that was kind of the end of this, like, let's continue to, to move the brand throughout the world. Really, that's the last three years of it keeping me there was, you know, it wasn't working at a steakhouse every day in San Francisco. It was traveling the world and opening restaurants, which are two entirely different things. So, you know, I think really after after four years of being there, I was at a point of like, okay, what's next for me, you know, artistically or creatively? And, and then we started opening restaurants. So then that satisfied that for a while. But yeah, it was when it was like, okay, we're done opening restaurants abroad for a while. And now we're going to shift all our focus to this monster project, you know, in San Francisco. Okay, I don't want, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, that's when I really started thinking about it was before that, that I, you know, I'd always wanted to do a restaurant, but that was kind of the, the thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to start really pushing on this now. So where did the idea for the concept of Gozu to kind of be built around Wagyu, like where did that initially come from for you? I spent a lot of time at steakhouses and it was, I felt like there was a disservice being done with Japanese beef and we sold a lot. I think at one time I had like 14 different prefectures on the menu and, you know, we had all these servers trained to like geek level on, they can name the prefecture by looking at like the marbling on the beef. It was incredible. I mean, it was really impressive. They were all New York strips and ribeyes and, and fillets. The hardest is I started developing a relationship with a couple farms, but one that I really developed is uh, Chateau Lene up in Hokkaido, just outside of Sapporo, which is an incredibly long flight, but it's very rewarding once you get there. It's beautiful. You're in Hokkaido. There's tons of space, natural Japan versus, you know, big cities and things like that. And then you still got the excitement of Sapporo. So I was traveling there a lot. I'd been there about three times and at a point where they would kind of, whether they were placating me or not, they would let me choose the animals for Alexander's and it would all match up. I would choose it and it would be the cattle ID and then the, you know, whatever, the certificate had the same cattle ID on it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. We're picking our own beef. Well, they're still alive. I was up there a fourth time and they said, it's really cool that you come all the way here to do this. You take an entire animal. Like we've never imported an entire animal to the United States. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to move an entire animal in a steakhouse. <laughs> like it's not gonna happen unless i just start hiding it and everything you know like we're good whatever oxtail raviolis and who knows what right so it really got me thinking and i was like man wouldn't it be cool if we could we could really elevate this this item that's done a lot for me in, in a time when i needed it the farmers and the way that these animals are raised and and just the the care that goes into it and the everything that you've heard about logging it was just something that i kind of felt like i owed the respect of showing it on a, on a proper stage and in my time in Japan, I'd see tons of yakiniku restaurants. And there's restaurants like, like Gozu in Japan that are focused on beef and they do it in a lot of different ways. And it's not that we were 100% new and innovative as much as it was this kind of thought of, man, if we can showcase an ingredient like this in a different way um, that, that can open people's minds a little bit to what this is and you can kind of see more of versatility of this animal rather than just be like clobbery over the head with waxy fat, then maybe we could put something together that's really special. That was what led it off as far as what it was going to be. I think the original name of the restaurant was Stickman, and it was just going to be lots of like off-cut beef on skewers. Like that was, That's all I wanted to do. I was like, it's going to be 20 seats, 
we're going to have 10 wines by the glass and a bunch of skewered beef and maybe a little bit of sashimi and some rice. Uh, San Francisco won't have it. It's interesting the way that it works. But then, you know, pandemic rolls around and you got a kitchen full of bored creative people and it turns into what it is, which, which I'm very happy with. I wouldn't change it. Completely different than what we set out to do. Was it hard to find a space? Because at that time, it's, you know, pre-pandemic San Francisco, which so like any available space is prime real estate at that point. It's probably changed now. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I, I was looking for, I was probably looking for a year and a half and kind of settled on the location we're in. I really like where we're at. And it was really good before the pandemic. It's coming back now, but that Spear Street corridor, it's just a block off the Embarcadero and it's a clean area and there's not a lot of homeless or drug use in that area. So that kind of checked all the boxes. It ended up being on the ground floor of this 18-story KBS building, which is not what I thought it would be. I think I think one of the spaces we looked at was over on like Maiden Lane, and it was just like, oh, yeah, we can just punch straight through. There's, no, there's nothing above this. Put a hood in, no problem. And now we're in the world of like PCUs and running long, long lines of exhaust and it's there now. It was a horrendous opening. It was super difficult to get done. The design of the space, it's very minimalistic, almost kind of neutral in a way. That all intentional, a lot of grays, but it's very modern. It's not like it's not welcoming or inviting or anything like that, but it's when you kind of walk through everything, it's like, oh, there's the counter. And it's like, that's kind of what you're drawn to. Was that all on purpose? So the entrance there, I mean, you open the front door into like a steel wall. <laughs> basically when we did that and, and andrea from project she's working with us on the new one too what i wanted there's been so many times when i'm in japan looking for a restaurant i end up just sliding a shoji screen and poking my head in Ugh, i don't know if i'm in somebody's living room or if i'm in this house I, and you're either a big crossed arm x you're in the wrong place or you get a smile and like come in come in you know have a seat and so we kind of wanted to create this idea, right, when you, when you get there. And we have a sign on the outside of the building that nobody sees. But we have one. Now we have one on the door for people that get lost right in front of the, the restaurant, which happens because it's kind of hidden in front of your face. So you come in, and, and then you come around the corner, and then we greet you, and you see the fire. You see the, the counter, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is definitely the spot. So it, there's definitely an intent to kind of put you on your heels when you come through the front door so that when you see those smiles and you come around, that there's even more. Uh, strength to that and more more genuine trust that starts to come from that you know the hearth that you guys have does everything that's not a cold app kind of basically somehow incorporate something from the hearth whether it's being cooked over it or smoke or something like that is that kind of the idea yeah everything comes there's no gas line in that space so everything is really cooked over the fire we've got a combi rational oven um but aside from that everything's cooked over that that fire even things that will we'll, you've got like a steam custard on the menu and even with that we've got mushrooms that are being roasted uh with pine and and kind of you know wood embers and so there's this the, the idea of that is that you have the irori is where they are in japan and they're in like traditional onsen lodges and things like that where you know it's just kind of the central kitchen where there's you know, maybe a little tea over a fire in, in the center of the room. And there's just this feel to it that's very warm and, and cozy. And so we kind of wanted to have that same thing come across. Um, the other big thing I wanted with that was to have the the chefs, the people that actually make your food, describe it to you, answer any questions that you have versus, 
you know, in the old days, it's all food runners and food runners are great, but most of them are running food for a living forever. They're going to college or they're, you know, doing whatever. So there's marginal focus at best and they don't have all the answers because they don't cook all the food. So we wanted to create that kind of intimacy as well, where there's just this interaction and you feel more like you're in someone's home than you feel like you've entered a business. I think it's very important. It's it's wild to me how many places you go into now where there's just like a glowing screen on some hostess's face that is asking you if you have a reservation. You know, it's, I don't know. It's not the best way to get greeted, uh, in my opinion. So we, we kind of dealt away with all that and really just try to make it a space where we can we can make it feel like dinner's being cooked for you, you know, rather than you're just in a restaurant that makes food. Is there a specific type of wood or charcoal that you use? Because we have a couple chefs here in Columbus. They just kind of started a, a bincho pop-up and they're using like bamboo sawdust that's compressed for what they're doing with a bitch tongue grill. But obviously that's not what you guys are using. So is there something specific that you source because of either burn life or flavor? Or? So we use red and white oak for our, our wood. White oak, super neutral red oak burns really hot and it's a little bit of a, a nod to kind of central california you know santa maria style grilling and things like that and white oak's just a great like number one it's easy to get number two it's just a consistent burn and, and you can get a good idea of like your your heat control for charcoal we use binchotan from the kishu prefecture in japan which has gotten extremely expensive since covid um, so we supplement that with, it's a pressed binchotan, but it, all bincho is white oak as well. They're just generally like, it kind of gets like super hippie when you get into it. It's, most of it is like fallen branches um, that are thrown into the kiln, um, which is why, you know, when you look at it, it looks like, it looks like sticks. Um, so it's kind of this sustainable way of clearing the forest and then using it to, to cook food. And there's, you know, a ton of things like that in Japan, predominantly for things that are like touching, touching the charcoal, we're using Kishu. So if we're doing any kind of like physical searing of like touching the, the charcoal to the to meat or to any protein that we're using or any vegetable, we'll use that. And then we're, we're using the pressed Japanese charcoal as well. How often do you guys change the menu around? Oh, it changes all the time. We do big changes at seasons, but then we also like to hang out in like these weird little micro seasons where, you know, you'll have something out for three weeks and then it's going to change. So it's, it's moving a lot. If you come once a month, you'll get three or four things probably that are different. We just changed over a whole bunch of stuff, um, which is great. But I, I love to keep things kind of moving forward and it's been an interesting road with with that and i think in alexander's we would change like every two weeks we'd change something which is probably a little bit too soon so now we're a little bit more intentful or a lot more intentful and we want to make sure that these dishes are completely ironed out before they hit the menu and so it's, it's an interesting game of you're working with this mushroom with the anticipation that matsutake are coming in order to be ready so there's a lot of kind of that preparation as we go and then matsutake show up and you scrap the mushrooms that you were using now it goes on to the menu so you can run for that whole, you know, six-week season if, if you're lucky. And then you move on to the next thing. So there's always something going on. Uh, Peggy Tan's our chef de cuisine. So we've got her right now in a role of basically heavy, heavy R&D where she's cooking and cooking and we're tasting together and really putting together kind of all the flavors. And it's her and I doing a lot of collaborating from that. But, of course, her doing most of the work because she's a badass. Yeah, that's kind of how we work through things and kind of anticipate seasonality and, and how things come. When you guys are creating a new dish, do you start with the Wagyu component or 
since you already know that the Wagyu component's gonna be there and you already kind of know the flavor profile, it's not really gonna change probably that much. Do you start with the other ingredients knowing that you're gonna add that in at some point? It kind of goes both ways, you know? I mean, it's not 11 courses of beef. You don't sit down and get the chuck roll and then you get the flat iron and then you get the, you know, it's much more subtle and it's used in a lot of different ways and whether it's seasoning or things like that. So basically anytime you bring a whole animal into a restaurant, it things change. Whether it's whole pigs, which is a lot easier to do because you're only talking about 200 pounds of meat versus, you know, 800 pounds of meat. But, you know, you bring a whole pig into a restaurant, you got to do something with, with the ears and the head meat. You got to do something with the tail. You've got two hams. You've got your belly that either becomes bacon or some kind of, you know, pork belly dish. You've got the lard that gets passed off to pastry for any kind of things or you're, or you're cooking in lard. Or... Beef is the same way. You've got all these components and it starts with the first time you bring it in, you're like, geez, what are we going to do with all this? And like, how much fat is coming off this animal? And what are we going to do with this cut that you can't just grill and eat? What, what happens if we put six months of cure on it? All that kind of stuff. So we start getting a little bit of that going where it's like, okay, we know what we're doing with this. We know what we're doing with this when we come in, when it comes in, like like you're saying. Um, but then there's also little things that come from that. So we'll make basically like a, a show you with beef where, you know, traditional soy sauces, soybeans, koji, salt, water. We'll take the soybean out completely and use lean beef to sub in for that protein. We'll ferment that at, you know, temperature um, just to make sure everything's safe. And then pour that off a month later and you've got this really nice sauce that tastes like soy sauce that you can use to season anything you want. And then you've got all the sauces that come from soy sauce, right? That you can, now you can riff on across that world. And then the other thing you have is you have what's left. You have these little denatured beef pieces and salt and, you know, things like that. These, these little amino acids that are left at the, the bottom that we'll take that and then we dry that and then we use that season thing. So it's kind of like this world where the more you start to work with it, the more it shows itself to you without, nobody sat down and said, we're going to make this soy sauce and then with the with what's left we're going to take that and dry that and then we're going to make that into salt and then we're going to mix that with chichimi and then you can use the actual beef to season beef it, it all just kind of comes through working with it and cooking and and thinking but it's not just like a it's not a rote process you know what's coming down the line a lot of it is focused on what's happening in the san francisco seafood world what's happening in the japan seafood world that's a big driver of you know where we're going we, we want to make sure that the menu at the restaurant's balanced but that you get what you came for which i think is a kind of a tough thing to figure out i think we've got it at this point but it took a little bit of time being that some people think they're just going to come in and order a wagyu steak and some sides so i think more and more that's becoming less the assumption but wild california ingredients farm produce you know just like any other restaurant in the bay area uh, dictates a lot we've got a, a heavy heavy um fermentation program just by the nature of of kind of paying attention to to how things are done in japan so being able to run products across seasons um and kind of changing the idea of what seasonality is you know where it's like well you can't do fiddleheads because it's not march or April, you know, how, how are you going to do fiddleheads in September and have it make sense from what people expect out of a San Francisco restaurant? And then it starts coming into the world of preservation. Are we out of season or are we right in season? <laughs> you know, and so I, I think all of that really goes into 
to what it is and and uh, and how we think of it. I think it's relatively on par with any other you know fine dining restaurant where it's ingredient focused. We've got this animal that gives us products that comes in. Um, and then we use those products as part of our, our larder in our pantry. Do you only get your Wagyu from Chateau Gunai? We work with a couple different farms. We've got some really cool bone-in products. Some of the first bone-in product in the United States from a, a farm in Kagoshima um, called Mizuzako Farm. So we're, we're working with a ribeye from them. Most of the big stuff, though, like we work with shoulders and necks and shanks the rounds any of those things are coming from I just because once you kind of get into this program anybody that's working on a small level like I is harvesting six to eight animals at a time so it's best to know where these animals are going prior to harvest or you're sitting on beef so everybody's kind of got their interesting little allocation and if you're constantly buying strips it starts becoming difficult to buy ribeyes because somebody else has been found to take the ribeye. So it's not just like this like meat store, <laughs> you know, where you're just like, let me get another one of those. Um, that I think the American public thinks the entire food supply chain is, but that's another story altogether. You know, when you look at things, it's like, what can you take on a consistent basis? And so that starts to kind of be where things like lock in a little bit and you're like, hey, we love the way this is and we've tasted it from many, many other farms in Japan and the United States. So we're gonna select, you know, one eye for this. Um, which is the bulk. Once Japan goes back to releasing whole animals in the United States, we'll, we'll probably be full on uh, snow beef again. Okay, so right now you can't bring in a whole animal because of COVID restrictions or? COVID happened and it takes a lot. Once you say, I want to take an entire animal, things start elevating into like kill slots and when is this animal going to be harvested versus how much time it's going to take to age versus how do you want it broken down in Japan? So we've got the ability to kind of make all of those decisions. And then it's like, okay, once it comes to the United States, where are we warehousing? How much is being aged directly in the restaurant? Because you're dealing, you're, it's this big 800 pound buy, it's a $60,000 purchase. It gets very complex once you get back into that. Now you're interrupting that whole flow of like, oh, wait a minute, these guys are taking the briskets, but this time they're not getting anything. So there's this whole coordination of it. Um, and then what you were using, right? Now there's a gap too. Now shoulders and chuck rolls are open for a minute, you know, while Gozi's working through briskets and rounds. There's a, a lot of coordination to it, which I think really the bottom line takes people everywhere. It takes people who are cutting. It takes coordination from the farm. And we're just not at a point yet in Japan. I mean, Japan just opened, what, a month and a half ago to outside business again you know i don't i just don't think we're at a point yet in japan where there's enough people to to make it happen in terms of dry aging you guys dry age some stuff in the restaurant but does some of it also come dry aged for you everything dry aged is aged in the restaurant we can do some hang like some just like whole carcass aging in japan if we want we can do obviously wet aging as long as we want as soon as this this whole process that happens obviously to change muscle to, to meat and that whole enzymatic breakdown and the protein change that kind of happens throughout that process. But yeah, anything that you eat this dry aged, we did in the restaurant. Is there a certain number of days that you're looking to dry age? Are you targeting like a ideal flavor or are there somewhere like you're going to kind of push the boundaries or is it just, you know, the meat's too expensive? Like we're not going to mess around with getting outside of the ideal window that we're looking for. There's a precision to it, but there's also a certain level of experiment. 
going to look at. I think chuck rolls, just the way that they're coming right now, are in several pieces. So smaller pieces are going to go shorter. All of our shoulders are between 45 to 55 pounds. So those can go longer. You get a little bit of loss when you do that, obviously, anytime you age. But the other benefit is when you're buying more of the animal, you're saving cost. You're not just, when all you do is buy ribeyes, somebody's making up for the rest of the animal and the price of that ribeye because this beef has to go somewhere. And so by taking the other pieces, we're getting a little bit better deal and we're going direct and, and things like that. So we've got the ability to, to make some changes, but once we get things dialed in, we keep them in that, in that zone. And that's usually around the, the 21 to 28 day mark. We've gone a hundred days on some stuff that we will encase in its own fat and just check things out and try it. And that, that's pretty cool. Um, but as far as like non-tallow encased beef, I think the longest we've gone, we've gone 60 days or so on a shoulder. That's it's nice. It gets a little bit funky, but it's not too over the top. There's like four different breeds of Wagyu cow, I think. I think it's black, brown, pulled, and shorthorn. Is there one that you guys primarily use? There's distinctions among the black as well. I think there's another four categories of that. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Black is primarily like kuroge beef is what is being... I guess there's a few places in Japan that'll go with like the red, Iwate Prefecture and things like that. But 99% of the prefectures are raising Kuroge. Is there a big difference in the flavor or quality between the breeds or? Yeah, you notice, you know, I think some of the red and some of the pulled was in the beginning, right? You're talking about a Buddhist and Shinto based country where eating meat wasn't even a, a thing. So all these were initially beasts of burden and they were used for farming and, and uh i think in the early days when people started eating these cows they had to do it outside and away from women because it was barbaric and weird and i think the red and the pulled are used a little bit more in those applications still where kuroge has now been really bred to be a, an eating animal not to say that if you're eating red wagyu that it was working on a farm somewhere. But I think it's closer to those days of when that was the case than not. Really, everything's pretty much shifted to Kuroge. And then there's a grading scale. They grade it by like yield and quality. So you get like an A, B, C, or one through five. So is there a big difference between an A5 and an A4 or like a A5 and a B5? Would the general public even really notice if you didn't tell them? So bees, we don't really work with A1, 2, and 3 for different reasons. And man, that's a that's a amazing question because there's so much, so much to it. A5 is maximum marbling. And so you've got your marbling score of 1 to 12. Uh, A5 is 8 and up. You know, in the United States, we've been taught that prime beef is the best beef and that choice beef is the second best beef and so on. With Japan in, in many, many ways, but, you know, and beef is one of them, it's just an indication of the amount of marbling. It doesn't mean it's better. It just means there's more marbling in A5 than there is in A4. And I think there's a lot of preference for A4 in Japan just because of the balance. I like A4. I like, I, I like A3 a lot. A3 eats like prime American beef. It ages really well because there's more protein structure to, to have that enzymatic process happen to. When it comes to A4 and A5, you know, if you're looking at an A4, which is like a 7 on the BMS scale, and an A5, which is an 8, it'd be hard for a normal person to tell the difference, I think. You know, you got some chefs out there that are just asking for 12s all the time, which there aren't 
you know, again, it's not a beef store. You know, these are these are animals. I think there's there's a long ways to go for everyone to completely understand that. I think we've always kind of taken the approach of we're working with a group of people that care about animals and what they and we subscribe to their ideas and ideals. And whether we're looking at a BMS eight that comes our way or a BMS ten that comes our way, we have the ability to work with them prospectively and, and keep things in balance with the menu how we want it. So it's much more of like this I wouldn't say A five is better than A four. I wouldn't say A five is better than A three. It's just what are you going to use it for? So when you're in the lineup of getting your beef from the farm, is it always going to be, you know, you tell them like, hey, we'll take anything from A2 to A4? Or do they tell you like, hey, we have what looks like it's going to be an A2 cow like coming up. You guys interested? So the world of beef altogether is based on branding, right? So you have like, like even on like a very basic level, like, like certified Angus beef, it's a brand. And so it's a bunch of different farms. It's a conglomerate basically where it's like, you've got to meet this level of criteria in order to be stamped certified Angus. It kind of goes the same when you look with Wagyu. And so like Chateau Lene, they'll have snow beef. And so snow beef is like 10 plus basically on, on the marbling scale. So they know that I'm looking for snow beef, which is most of what we get. That's what we're going to get. I'll get phone calls and say, hey, we've got a nine that's looking really cool. You know, if you want to do some longer aging or something like that, then yeah, we can make that decision on that. But yeah, it's a lot of just back and forth with brokers and with our people here that are communicating with the farm. And it's much more of a communication process, but there's still brands that are in place. So then it's almost like if somebody's like, hey, do you want to try this other brand for a minute, you know, rather than, you know, than, than what you've been using. And that kind of goes across the board with, with everything. Like Kobe beef, Kobe beef comes from, you know, a certain amount of farms in that, you know, in the Hyogo prefecture, but there's certain standards that it has to meet in order to be called Kobe. Same with like Sendai beef or Hidagyu or any of those. They all have certain criteria that has to be met. And then that becomes a product that that's made available. You mentioned previously too, you were talking about getting bone-in ribeyes maybe from Japan and that just kind of started. What was like the reason for that just being able to happen? Back in, I want to say it was 2000. 9, 2010, there's this big mad cow or hoof and mouth, big outbreak in Japan, and they had to kind of decimate the entire Wagyu population. Um, and so it's basically a, a spinal disease. So for the longest time, you haven't been able to import bones that are anything connected to the spine for as long as I've been cooking from Japan. You can do it from Australia, but for some reason they're not okay with it in Japan. I think it has to do with the extended feeding times that are happening with with Wagyu, um, where like in the United States, things are going mostly like 26 to 28 weeks. And in Japan, they're going over 30 weeks in a lot of these animals. So it just kind of, I guess it gives more of a propensity for the possibility of, of disease in that way. USDA opened... To the idea of bones that weren't connected to the spine, like like a ribeye, where you've got these big, you know, long tomahawk rib bones and some shanks and things like that. But I think up until recently, right when USDA allowed it, there were a couple small farms that tried it, and they didn't cover the bones before they shipped, which normally you do. It's just called bone guard that keeps it from popping the the cryovac bags. They didn't do that, and it punctured the bag. And if a bag shows up to the United States punctured, the entire piece just gets thrown out immediately. So I think some of these small farms are seeing some big hits of $28,000, $3,000 worth of revenue just getting pitched into the garbage because of a, a pop bag. So then Japan pulled back on it in a big way. And then Mizusako Farm, uh, which is in Kagoshima, they're a little bit larger farm. They've got 
I think they've got a little over a thousand head. So they've got the capital kind of behind it to try it out and it's been working. So there's a couple of us in the US that have bought it, but it's really still kind of widely unknown. It's a weird geeky wagyu thing that I don't even think people understand the significance of Japanese bones being in the United States uh, to, to make it a big deal. But for us, it's fun. So in the restaurant, we just slice them and cook these monster wagyu steaks for groups of eight or 10 and slice them there table side and, and uh, pass across. So it's an interesting thing to see how it's, how it's continuing to kind of open up and how wagyu is starting to widen its its way into the United States. So did you ever have to get a Wagyu certification or anything, or is that something that you were ever interested in doing? There's a couple certifications out there. So we're certified Kobe. Kobe was kind of the first to do it because there was a lot of uh, fraud happening with product that wasn't necessarily coming from Kobe or meeting the standards of Kobe. They've got a program where basically you pay X amount of dollars, they send you a bunch of swag and a bronze bust statue of a cow and it's all kind of cool and then when i started doing that with like their specific partners so they send out bronzes the guys that are brokering you know the majority of all this are behind uh craft wagyu in japan and so they're the ones that are meeting with a lot of these farms and kind of you know introducing chefs to to everyone and now they have a certified this chef uses craft wagyu thing so it's a little bit of marketing well it's a lot of marketing there's a whole nother deep pit to dive in with certification and cattle id numbers and what's real and what's not out there and i think for the longest time i was chasing down certificates and then kind of realized that certificates are not really doing anything they're printed off somebody's printer in the united states and handed out the certificates are also just kind of like a marketing thing so then it gets into this world of like how do we track and and all of that but it's a crazy place out there with with the certifications so you guys primarily use like off cuts right the uncommon ones what makes that so challenging when you guys are using that stuff is it just more labor intensive or is it trying to educate the diner as to what exactly that they're eating because they don't really understand it it's a little bit of both i think when i first launched the restaurant my thought was that I was going to enlighten people to new textures and understand, you know, just that it's okay to be chewing for a little bit longer than you normally would. You've got all this flavor that's still coming from this this piece of meat. And kind of treating it in the way that it's treated in Japan and any kind of like yakiniku spot or something like that. Uh, but what really ended up happening was people were just spitting it out. And so then we kind of had to shift and say, okay, we need to start applying some techniques to get this cut to where it's going to be acceptable to the American palate. And we can push people a little bit. Um, but we're not going to be able to just, you know, rip the door wide open and say it's okay to eat bouncy short rib um, that's just been grilled for for two minutes. So there's been there's been a little bit of a learning curve on on both sides of the of the counter. I'd say I think now we're in a spot where it's very technique focused and uh, and that's fine. I think it's it's great and it's what the restaurant has has become. But I'd still like to be able to see a day when we can get Americans to understand, you know, that texture is is okay uh, in beef. It doesn't just have to fall apart when you eat it. So you mentioned earlier too in our conversation about some structural stuff with the space that you guys wound up with the restaurant. Was that the main issue for the fire that you guys had? Because you guys opened for like a month or two, right? And then there was like a fire and that kind of shut things down. But then the pandemic happened. So it kind of was almost like a moot point anyways. You guys probably would have been shut down. We opened in November of 2019. We were super busy. It was great. Lots of great press. And, you know, we had this awful construction company that we worked with that, I mean, just never again will will I work with these guys. They built the wall behind the hearth incorrectly. 
essentially there was plywood inside that wall. Uh, then a rack was mounted to the wall and anchored into that plywood, which I'm not sure why there's plywood in the wall to begin with. And then of course, all this heat that are, you know, we're cooking on this rack that's on the wall and the fires under the rack and then the heat's transferring through the wall. Um, and it was just kind of like this, like long fuse that <laughs> had, uh, kind of started smoldering, I guess, from the day we lit the first fire and then, uh, decided to go full force at 7:30 at night on New Year's Eve. So we had a restaurant full of people. We were just at the turn. So we had all the people from the first seating there just going into dessert and all the people from the second seating there because we were a month old and running behind. So we had our entire like New Year's clientele there at the restaurant while this wall is like shooting flames out of the top. And uh, then it hits this junction box and all the lights go out. And uh, I mean, it was just kind of a surreal last kicking the nuts of the construction process uh, or what i thought would be uh and then yeah then we go through construction and rebuild replan put in a cmu concrete wall you know like it should be and then by the time we're about to reopen you know covid's been around for three weeks i want to say and we're like all right we'll just let this kind of brush over you know another another two three weeks and then we'll open back up and of course everybody knows the story of covid um so yeah then it, we started our life of outdoor dining and the whole mess of 2020 and 2021 and really to an extent 2022 so yeah, we're, we're still going through it you know but it's uh we're all good and we're lucky and no one got hurt when you guys are doing the outdoor dining stuff how much of a change is that for you guys is it just simply like just food has to be run out side or do you have to kind of tinker with the whole operation oh yeah we did we rebranded it all together for outdoor we kind of created like a there's this little green space beside the building it's an 18 story building so it's required to have these like green spaces and so i talked to the, the building and they were all really cool about all of it and they said sure use that space out there if you want so we bought tables and chairs and heaters and you know cushions and blankets and everything you need to sit outside and in 60, 55 degree weather in San Francisco. And then we had some Conroe boxes, uh, just like Binchotan grills that were portable from like all the pop-up events that we did. We took those outside. We set up printers. We set up lights. It was just kind of like everything. We tried to build a little restaurant out there. And then, yeah, we had all these heaters. So the, the space would get warm and then one gust of wind would come through and everybody's freezing like all my heat's gone but yeah we did we called it gozu chan uh which was just basically basically like baby gozu and we did a bunch of just skewers over charcoal a couple little sashimi dishes and stuff like that but we weren't really doing anything on, on a fine dining level until people started asking for kind of like this omakase version of things so we started putting together like a 10 or 11 skewer set menu i think people were just exhausted with making decisions during the whole covid period um, and still are to a high degree. So that ended up being a thing that started shifting us back into the, you know, the way that we do things now, where it's just multi-course and lots of tasting and education. And the, I, I kind of say I've tried to open this place as a casual spot three times, and it always finds its way back to, to high-end um, fine dining. So that's where we're going to leave it and keep pushing it from that perspective. But, but yeah, it was an interesting time with, with the outdoor, for sure, for everybody. Well, your more casual spots coming, right? That's Yokai, which you're working on opening. It's kind of a bar and you're going to have yakitori skewers and seafood and wagyu and charitables and small plates. So what kind of gave you the idea to open a second concept? That's kind of interesting. My partner, Ben, and I had been traveling around and checking things out. We we're looking to start a new business. Something that was really starting to catch our eye was like all, all this hi-fi stuff that was going on in Japan and really just like 
geeking out on all this high fidelity audio and vintage audio that Japan was really getting into. And it started happening a little bit here in the U.S. and in Los Angeles and New York. And there were just a couple spots. There's still just a couple spots doing it here in the city. But basically, we started thinking about like, oh, it'd be cool to do this like cocktail bar with like chilled out skewers, nice and casual, but but still this like feeling of sitting in like a rich friend's living room kind of thing. And uh, then just like coincidentally, my neighbor is a, is a partner at Kidder Matthews Realty Group. And he was like, hey, I don't know if you're looking for anything, but you know, this space came up. We took a look at it and ended up getting a great deal on it. And it's this uh, really, really historic space in San Francisco that was built in 1907. It's all brick and timber and huge windows. And it's just a beautiful piece of history there in the city. I think it was the first permanent building to be built on mission street back when the whole place was a tent city and um it was built 30 years before either bay bridge or or golden gate were built so it's just this really cool relic that reminded me a lot of buildings in in tokyo where you you know you see these big glass and steel structures and then you see this little temple it's kind of sandwiched in between them that's been there for two thousand years so it kind of was reminiscent of that so we grabbed that and yeah that's what we're working on we're focusing really heavy on audio in the bar and lounge area and then also really wanting to make sure that this is a, a full-on you know restaurant experience where you can go in and sit down and take clients and lots of shared food a little bit more of a wide net as far as cuisine goes where it's not all beef focused we've got a lot of seafood and, and poultry and vegetables and uh, of course we'll have a little bit of wagyu in there as well but yeah something that's a little bit more for everyone with a more more approachable price point that you can just kind of stop in for happy hour and stuff like that well having this extra space you know having yokai open will that allow you to kind of shift some ingredients from gozu to as well you know if you guys do wind up being able to get full cows in and everything like that yeah absolutely and i mean that goes across the board with anything you're buying buying adjusts with food with beverage which becomes very helpful and i think gozu will continue to to go up into the stratosphere and yokai will be able to kind of be the the everyone's spot to check out but yeah i mean there's also a huge basement kitchen in the new location that's actually larger than the dining space altogether and i think we'll be able to work with some additional fermentation and and really have a place for all these ferments that we work with are you guys still on track to open kind of spring 2023 or has the pandemic uh, delayed stuff? It's delayed, but luckily we kind of anticipated delays. And I think we're falling into the pocket that we created for that. It's most likely looking like April or May. So a little bit later in spring, but we should have some great ingredients by then. So it should, and spring's always a great time in the city. So it should, um, should be great timing. So you guys not open yet, but so far... Which has been easier, opening the first restaurant, Gozu, or opening the second one, Yokai? The second one, for sure. Establishing a restaurant in the city is kind of a feat on its own, and Jeff that owns his own thing in San Francisco can, can attest to that. It's not easy, and it changes you. I think once you start to understand that, you understand the, how construction works and, and just kind of the larger picture of, of everything. It starts to become a little bit easier. You start to understand timelines. Frustration is still there, but moderate because you just kind of know it's coming. Yeah, I would definitely say the the second is easier and it's easier to kind of find a group to come in on it with you and and to find investment and, and all those kinds of things. Going from a chef owner to now part of your restaurant group, you're going to have two concepts and probably eventually more down the road. What's been the biggest change for you or challenge of going from single chef owner to now owner of restaurant group and multiple concepts? 
I think I'm still going through it. It's letting go. Letting go of, of what you don't need to do and trusting the people that you have in place. Just realizing that at some point, some people are just going to do it better than you. Um, and so I think that's part of growing and, you know, maturing and really, I've been wrestling a lot with like, what what is my role? Um, I think as chefs, we we identify with our restaurants and our food as part of us. And I think once you start removing some of that, you have to kind of re-identify and redefine what your role is in the world and, and, and what you do besides, you know, just cook dinner uh, every night. So I think that's a that's a big point of growth. And, you know, a couple of my friends are kind of going through the same thing and opening, you know, their second restaurants. And yeah, it's something that, that you got to go through. But I think anybody that, that grows out of group does it to a certain degree. And then I think you can... You know, once we get number two open, we can sit back for a minute and, and really drill down into both of them. But it definitely takes a lot of time and focus and pain and energy to get a restaurant open. You've been working in San Francisco for, you know, a decade now. How has the food and restaurant industry in the city changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change and where do you think it's headed? Yeah, San Francisco is always reinventing um, long before me. That's kind of what that city does. The constant is that it always changes. I think we've started to see some things. It's kind of cool. A lot of a lot of people that I kind of came up through restaurants that were working for other people when I was working for other people have their own places now, and that's that's fun to see. So you know, you've kind of got this. I don't want to call it a new guard, but you've definitely got a lot of chefs that are new and full of energy. And I think things are really shifting. I think on a global level to very personally based cuisine based on either heritage or personal experience and things like that. So you're seeing that you're seeing smaller restaurants opening up in the city again for a minute. It was 150, 200 seat restaurants that were just full every night. And I think, you know, there's, there's been a shift on the focus of that a little bit to let's make sure we've got more touch with people and it's not just a, a business, you know, from the outward face. So, yeah, I mean, I think those are probably the two, obviously we've got staffing, concerns you know a big thing we're trying to do at all of our restaurants is is make it so people can have a life and uh work in a kitchen and work in a restaurant so that's something that we're always pushing for and providing normal things to the rest of the workforce like healthcare and <laughs> time off you know things things that are uh it's crazy that we're like hey look how great we are yeah i mean i think we're seeing a shift to all that um and then even in you know just the way that the way that people are treated um is definitely something that's changing in a big way. And I think that's been a trend. I wouldn't even call it a trend. It's just a something that's been needing to happen for decades to start treating people that work in restaurants like humans. I think being here on the West Coast, and, and you see it in New York City too, there's a big propensity for change in that area and making sure that the people that work in our restaurants are enjoying themselves and having an enriched life and you know can spend time with family and friends and do other things and do it while being healthy and both mentally and physically. So I think those are the big things. I think some of the things I'd like to see change in San Francisco are some of the tax laws against small businesses. It's not an easy place to own a restaurant at all. And we just get pounded with taxes. So that'd be a cool thing to see. It'd be nice to see the streets cleaned up. It'd be nice to not have to to talk to our guests about not leaving valuables in their car when they come to dinner because they will most certainly be gone when they leave. I, th- I think San Francisco's got a long way to go cleaning that up but i think the city also knows that the restaurants are the heartbeat of the city um and if the restaurants go there's not there's not a whole lot left i think there's a focus there and i think i hope things are being weighed in that way and 
things are being taken into account and, and thought of with the restaurants in mind. Um, and, and we've seen small changes, which has been, which has been good, but you know, we can always use more. It's a very tough place to run a restaurant, but, but it's also very rewarding. What's next for you professionally? Obviously, Yokai is opening on the horizon, focusing on that, and Gozu's kind of running at full steam. But uh, anything else next for you on the horizon, or is just kind of those two things? It's that for a minute. I'll get bored again at some point and put myself into this mess <laughs> another time. Um, I think we all do. But right now, I am very busy and very, uh, very satisfied with the work that we're doing and and uh, the teams that we have in place and just kind of the group we're building and and everything that we're doing inside the dining group and and really seeing people kind of come forward and put their best forward uh, in the name of the group and it's a cool thing to see there's a lot of reward when you start leaning into two and i'm sure it just keeps going the bigger your group gets we don't have a goal of growing out to be a michael mina group or something like that i think maybe it's someday we might have five restaurants i want to be able to still touch everything and make sure that we're we're offering the hospitality and the experience that that our guests deserve right now too is plenty so this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast chef kate Koo, who's the owner and chef of zilla sake up in portland oregon she left behind for you if you could eat only one type of meat for the rest of your life and since you run a Wagyu-focused restaurant, we're going to remove Wagyu from those options that you can select. What would it be? My cheater answer is happy meat that isn't raised on a factory farm and, and has been treated with love. I got a feeling that's probably not what the question's about. So probably like heritage bread pork would be my next choice. Um, there's a ton of versatility and you can do a lot and pigs are delicious. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. Let's go with like a uh, last meal on earth question. Yeah, that's always an interesting one because it, it can change based on what you've eaten recently. But Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's the best way to cook a Wagyu steak at home in a home kitchen? When we were doing the meat company, we'd have all kinds of questions like that. They were awesome. I've always recommended if you have a grill, it's great to, to do it on a grill outside. Super high heat, depending on the size of the piece. It's not a whole lot of, you know, I think one of the things they tell you to do with, with steaks traditionally is let it temper. With Wagyu, I, I don't always see that being a necessity, especially if you're dealing with a smaller, like, three-ounce block or something like that. If you're dealing with something a little bit larger, I think you can definitely let it temper. But if you can get your grill nice and hot, five to 800 degrees, and then just put a good sear on it, leave the top open, watch for flare, and then just kind of move it around. I, I love the, the Maillard crispiness that you get from, from beef in general, but from Wagyu specifically. I'm not a big grill marks dude. I just like it evenly marked everywhere. The more that like crispy action that I can get on the outside, and then when you slice, you've got the nice fleshy, rare interior. I think it's it's one of the best things in the world. Alternatively, if you don't have the ability to get outside and grill, I would say cast iron is probably the next best best thing. No fat needed in the pan, but again, you can get that pan nice and hot. Make sure you've got your ventilation available because there's going to be smoke that, that comes with, with the fat that hits the pan. But then it's the same thing, same, you know, same preparation initially, but then just let that beef hit the, the pan. The fat starts to render. You can use a little bit of that fat to baste. And then just sear all sides. And uh, once you do that, pull it out, let it rest just a little bit, and then you can slice. So this last set of questions we ask to everybody who comes on the podcast, so a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for all the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far, looking back on it? 
I don't know. I've got a couple answers to that. I've got a person that it's kind of like a, an amalgamation of everybody that I've I've worked for. I moved around a lot when I was younger, and I kind of regret it because I don't have any like strong, strong mentor. You know, I think when I was working with Steve Oakley in in Indianapolis, he he kind of knocked the the dumbass kid out of me and really started to open my eyes to the professionalism of of kitchens and and how you can take it seriously and how it can become something very special. I think when I was working with Joseph Elevato at Nobu and Social House, uh, Joe really opened me up to business and to kind of just human psychology and being able to manage people for the people that they are rather than this blanketed idea of, you know, this is how I do it and you can enjoy it or not, which had an immense amount of value uh, that came with that. And then even, you know, as recent as Jeff Stout, uh, who's at Alexander's, just kind of this um, do what you want to do because no matter what happens, half the people are going to hate it, <laughs> which is one of the, the greatest uh, lines that I've heard. And, and it's true. You know, it's, it's a very simplistic way of talking about finding your audience and finding your, your clientele. The idea of going in, you've got to go in somewhat fearless and really ready to do whatever needs to be done to, to achieve your, your vision. So that was a big thing for me as well. And then I think the last person that really said another simple phrase uh, was an uncle that has nothing to do with food industry at all, but uh, is an uncle that I'm close with that always just said, be yourself. That was something that's that's carried me through life in multiple ways. With restaurants, it's huge because authenticity with yourself is the only way you're ever going to be happy. Chasing other people's ideas of what's beautiful or what's delicious is a tough world to be in. So staying true to yourself and finding your clientele, I think is the two biggest pieces that, that I've used. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Spoons. Spoons are a big one. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give. Person gets stuck at the airport, especially these days if you're on Southwest, uh, they can relate to the feeling probably. Flight gets canceled. You know, they reach out to you. You guys aren't open. You know, hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Oh, uh, we've got good friends. Um, Chef Ray Lee at Akiko's. Um, he's just now moving that restaurant. He's got a beautiful new location that's actually very near us uh, in the Avery building, the Avery condo building. Incredible sushi and uh, Japanese food. Uh, and then another really good friend of mine is, is Rodney Wages, uh, who is Avery, which is a Michelin-starred restaurant in the Fillmore. I'm still am baffled at how Rodney runs his restaurant so tight and so wonderfully. He's been a great friend and over the years that I've really gotten to know. And his food's incredible. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place that you haven't been to yet, you still want to visit. And then uh, any place you haven't eaten at, you still want to dine at one day. I'd love to get to Spain. I haven't gotten to Spain. And I mean, there's a whole laundry list of places. I'd love to go to Echabari, the higher end restaurants as well with, you know, the Roca brothers and all of that. I think San Sebastian and that whole area is really cool. I think I've had three or four trips planned for that that have all been shifted into opening restaurants in Asia trips. <laughs> But we'll get there one day. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Jeez. I saw a guy stab a ticket one time with just one of the, the little ticket spikes. Uh, and, and the spike went right through his hand. Like right through the middle of his hand. We had to pull it out and send him to the hospital. And it was like this weird, stupid thing. Yeah, that's probably one of the one of the weirder. I mean, you can talk about that forever. There's so much dumb shit that happens in restaurants. That's the, one of the first ones that comes to mind. 
Did you guys have to pull his hand off or was he able to just leave it in and go to the hospital with it through his hand? Or was it like attached to the... Nah, we, I don't know why. We pulled it out. But he's just like, oh. And it didn't like puncture the top level of, of the skin of his hand, but you could see this spike like pushing up like a tent, you know. And, and he was like, oh man, this isn't good. And yeah, we pulled it and then wrapped it. And then, yeah, then he was off to the emergency room. I saw another guy that actually this one was kind of freakish. He, uh, this was at Novo. I, you know, Novo, we were kind of notorious for very, very, very sharp knives. It was a, a thing that Joe always had for us and that we kind of carry on as well. I had just sharpened a knife and I was working grill with this guy and, you know, I had it on the cutting board. He moved it to two shelves above and set it on some towels that were up there. And then right in the middle of service, we're cooking and He's got his left hand down on the cutting board and he's reaching up to grab a towel and he pulls the towel and my knife comes down and it slices like right through the webbing in between his thumb and his index finger and just like stuck right in the cutting board straight up. And that was a big one that put him out for about five weeks with, with that, <laughs> that old thing. So it was another kind of gnarly incident, but yeah, I mean, over the years, it, it's like, there's a lot of crazy weird stuff that happens, so. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is kind of unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? Yeah, I love like a good fast food burger. Not not so much like McDonald's or something like that, but In-N-Out here in California is a good one. Super Duper is starting to climb up on my list of In-N-Out challengers. Those are big. I like Coca-Cola a lot. I don't drink it a lot, but I've always I've said a lot of times that if I had to go with a complete natural diet, it would have to be a natural diet with Coke. Yeah, it's just one of those things that's great with a burger. Those are two of them. Pizza junkie. Anything sweet and salty, you know, with our American palates has been something we grew up with. So, Favorite Instagram account you follow? Just that one account that you just never really skip over. You always enjoy whatever that they're they're posting. I've been digging what's going on on the, the Shanty Shack Whiskey Instagram. The guy that's like curating their whiskey bar, it's just, I think he has it listed on the site as like, comedian slash whiskey enthusiast or something like that but he's got these hilarious tasting videos where it's over the top and ridiculous and it's kind of like an acquired you're like man this guy's really into whiskey and then you watch it four or five times and it starts becoming hilarious just the, the over enactment of tasting and smelling shanty shack they're pretty funny trying to wean off all that stuff so i'm not looking at a whole lot plus i like to keep our ideas inward uh, in the restaurant at this point so what's one cookbook that everyone should own whether they're professional chef home chef what's that one cookbook that you think everybody should have in their kitchen i think one that opened my mind the most possibly is on food and cooking by harold mcgee that just kind of really starts to explain the science behind what's happening in food. And from a professional aspect, it really helps. But I think even from a home perspective, it can help as well. I always think books that can teach technique and thought over recipe are best, um, just because then you don't need to carry it around. Yeah, food science is always a good one. Favorite dish, favorite thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back over the course of your career, you can point to this as almost like your aha moment, like you knew you could be a professional chef. Once you kind of created this. Oh man, I'm still not sure on that one. If jeez, <laughs> uh, we've got a pretty nice caviar set up on the menu right now. That was, you know, certainly a team effort that went into it. But you know, we've basically got a a silken tofu that's set in the base of a of a tin 
bowl. It's kind of a riff on a dish that I did years ago with Matt Beta, a chef that I worked with at Alexander's. That was a it was kind of a caviar and stoba idea. And the original had like stoba crackers and chives and kind of a broth made with kayashi, which is like basically the the broth of cold soba. So we've kind of refined that, and now we've got this tofu base uh, and some lemon and chive and shiso. But then we've got a sauce that is basically treated like soy sauce, where soy sauce is made with soybeans and koji and water and salt. We're using the lean trim from beef to make kind of a beef shoyu, so it actually doesn't have soy in it at all, but it tastes like soy sauce. Um, then we season that and make that into a kayashi and turn it into a little froth and then that goes on top of the the tofu with caviar then becomes the actual salt aspect of it so it's a dish that really leans on every single component i think once we nailed that one it was kind of one of those moments where you're like man this is this is kind of next level this is really good you know and encouraged us to continue to push i'm an anthony bourdain fan but not everybody is or was if you were is there a moment episode scene about him that stands out to you if you weren't, is there another culinary personality, uh, Emeril, Guy Fieri, Jacques Pepin, somebody who's on TV that you kind of gravitated towards coming up through your career? Yeah, I think Bourdain, I first read Kitchen Confidential back in like 96 or something when it was relatively new. And it was uh, an eye-opening experience. I think the book Medium Raw, when I read that, was also uh, very eye-opening to see him go back and kind of amend some of the things he said about people in the first book and, and admit that he was young and realize that, you know, these are the masters of the culinary universe. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a, a super stand up thing to do. And Anthony Bourdain always had plenty of charisma and character in class. One of the favorite things I hear from him is when he refers to the kitchen as the last great meritocracy, um, where either you can do what you say you can do or you can't. And I think that goes into some kind of line of you can either cook 500 omelets at lunch or at brunch like you said you can or you can't there's a true beauty to that we're all people of craft and you know with new restaurants and business and all the things that go with restaurants i think it's sometimes nice to be refreshed and to remember what what we all do so yeah that's it was a tragic thing but uh i think we're all still learning from them where can people find you social media website reservations plug everything yeah, so we've got Instagram. We're yokai.sf. Gozu is gozu.sf. Jish website for Gozu is gozusf.com. Yokai, we've got a landing page set up right now that's kind of gathering anybody's information that wants to be updated with things going forward. That's yokaisf.com. We've got the restaurant on Facebook, easy to find. Reservations are available on Talk. We've got a uh, little pop up that we're doing with Yokai starting mid January. That'll be happening in the, the Whiskey Lounge at Gozu, which should be a lot of fun. It gives some people some some good ideas at what we have planned for the new space and give us a chance to really start digging into the cuisine of that. And Gozu's open Tuesday through Saturday? Yeah. And like you said, reservations on talk and everything too as well. But I had the chance to go. I had an awesome time. It was just me by myself. But you, know, you have the counter seating so you can watch everybody cook. The one thing I did notice that you guys are pretty silent and a lot of nonverbal communication, which probably nobody else in the restaurant even was paying attention to. But, uh, you know, they're all like talking with, you know, whoever or whatever. But that was the one thing I kind of noticed where it's like, oh, they're not really saying too much. But then you kind of like watch a little bit closer and it's there's little head nods and little glances and eye looks and like everything is still just kind of moving. So that was a really cool part. I thought that was super interesting. But the food is delicious too as well. So. Well, thanks. That's cool you notice that. Yeah, looking forward to Yokai opening. And whenever we're back in San Francisco, we'll definitely stop in and 
and try that because it sounds like an interesting concept. And, you know, like I said, Gozu was awesome too as well. So, but if you ever need anything from us, and once Yukai opens, you want to jump back on and talk about it for 15, 20 minutes, whatever. Always an open invitation to anybody who comes on the podcast to come back on whatever they need. We want it to be kind of a place where um, they got to come promote something or whatever. Uh, we're happy to have them back on, and but uh, try and support everybody as much as we can because they supported us with coming on and spending some time uh, talking about their career. So stay in touch. If you need anything from us, let us know. Otherwise, you know, hopefully we'll see you. Soon in San Francisco, we've been there a bunch of times, so it's always a cool place for us to go and try a bunch of different restaurants when we're there and everything. So I was there earlier this year. I'm sure we'll be back there sometime next year or something like that. Sounds great. We'll be here. A big thanks again to Mark for coming on the podcast. We actually recorded this over two days. We were recording and then 